You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, again, I'm grateful that you're here. And uh, this is the fourth of five of these lessons on Jesus and we've looked at Jesus and evil, uh, you know, look at how Christ dealt with that, uh, Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus and women two weeks ago, and today we're going to look at Jesus and the sick. And uh, next Sunday we'll look at Jesus and death. You know, Jesus encountered death a number of times, himself dying as well and the significance of that. And I think we're going to see some really profound significance on how Jesus approached the sick. All right, before I do that, I, I want to sort of lay kind of a prefatory mark about this. Um, I mean, we all know what sickness is. You, you've had your share of sickness. You've been around sickness. and You know, you know a lot of people who uh, bear great pain and disabilities and so on. However, I will say this, that a person can live a very meaningful life and still be sick and still be disabled in many ways. I've been around you know, blind people and deaf people who are, are, are very you know, proud of the lives that they have and, and they're not ashamed of their limitations. And so this study here is not intending to say if someone is blind or deaf or sick, they're a little less human than what you know, we may be. That's not the point. And I don't think that's going to be Jesus' point either as well. That Jesus has a very important role, important kind of purpose, in healing the sick. All right. To do that, I want us to, first of all, uh, kind of define what is a healing miracle. Now, there's always you know, a lot of debate about what that could be. What is a healing miracle? Well, at the very minimum, we can say something sort of out of the ordinary has happened with a healing miracle. That is, something was introduced to a situation that changed the trajectory of that situation. Okay, we would call that a healing miracle, and that can occur in all kinds of ways. There are several words that are used in the New Testament to describe those events that we call healings. One is the, the Greek word thalma, uh, which kind of means wonderful, prodigious, or something like that. The other word that is used to describe those particular events are called signs. This is mainly what the Gospel of John. There are seven miracles in John. and I'm at the moment forgetting if he uses the word sign for each one of those. But that's a pretty suggestive word, that these things that Jesus did with many of the sick people were signs of something. And so the question is, what were they signs of? All right. St. Augustine argues that a miracle is uh, is something that is out of the ordinary, uh, in a sense what many people would say contrary to nature, but not to what God thinks is nature. That's the key distinction. I may think it's unnatural that something has happened. A person was blind now and can see someone who's dying is now alive again. But from God's perspective, it is the restoration of what is natural. The miracles here do not endow people and I was thinking of this when I was driving on, and if, if, you, if you can think of a counterexample to this, please tell me, it won't hurt my feelings, that I don't think any of the miracles that Jesus performed, especially to the sick, endowed them with supernatural powers. Like gave, just a, a grotesque example, to a blind person gave him a third eye. No, just restored sight to the two eyes, or to the leprous, made them 
completely immune from any disease from that point on. No, it's just healed from the leprosy. The point in this is that a miracle is a returning to the natural design God has for us. It's not an endowment of a supernatural gift. We don't become semi-gods, in other words, if, if God performs a miracle. God restores us to the natural plan that God has for us, and that there's something good about that. And so Augustine sees these miracles as a sign of the goodness creation, that God is so committed to the goodness creation and performs these miracles to restore the goodness of creation. All right. Um, oftentimes, uh, and, and I don't, the roughly 37, 38 miracles in the scriptures. Uh, the Gospel of Mark has more perverse than any other Gospels. The Gospel of John has the least amount of perverses of all the Gospels. And uh, I, I, I guess maybe I should have done this before I came here today, but often when Jesus would perform a miracle, he would touch that person. I always thought there was something significant about that. But oftentimes, Jesus would speak to that person. Not just touch, but speak. In fact, with Simon's mother-in-law, when Jesus heals her, it says he spoke harshly to the fever. Not just to the woman, but to the fever. So Jesus uses two things, two approaches, two encounters or contacts with people that brings about these healings, touching and then also speaking. There is a correlation, and we're going to see a couple of these instances, uh, between Jesus as the healer and the faith of those who are healed. He makes that correlation on a couple of occasions. He will say, like to the centurion, uh, what, you know, what great authority you have. It's by your, I mean, you recognize what authority is, and your faith has enabled this to happen. Your faith has healed you, Jesus says, on a couple of occasions. But on, on, on other occasions, it will say, and I'll point this out in just a minute, that Jesus did not perform a lot of miracles in certain areas around the Sea of Galilee because of their disbelief. So there is a correlation in Jesus' ministry between the healing and the faith of the, he, the people who are being healed. Now, I think the right way to start our effort to understand why Jesus performed miracles, come in, come in. And um, uh, how and and uh, how Jesus performed the miracles and why they performed the miracles starts early in his ministry, and uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you follow my map up here, here's the Sea of Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is preaching over here on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and then goes back across the sea to Nazareth, his hometown. And his first sermon in Nazareth, even though we know that there were other sermons, because Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew says he went around preaching the kingdom of God, the good news, and performing miracles. But there in uh, Luke chapter 4, he gives his first sermon. He, if you remember that, he's in the synagogue. He stands up. He gets a scroll, and he turns immediately to Isaiah chapter 58 and then chapter 61. And he reads these words. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read all this because there's a very significant point to be made about this. All 
All right, he is in the synagogue. He has the scrolls there, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, uh, Part of that is from Isaiah 58, but most of it is from Isaiah 61, which is, if you study Isaiah 51, it is a description of the consummation of the ages. It is a way to describe how God is going to bring everything to its fulfillment. That the end result of God's work, providential care, and history is to bring us to this point of the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, a lot of people think, and there are some, I think it's good interpretation to say that because there are some obvious parallels between it and what's called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is the 50th year, the the, the seventh of sabbatical years in Leviticus. And the, that particular year is unique. Uh, there's no record in the Old Testament, at least I can't see it, of it ever being followed, by the way, even though it's a commandment. And that is, all debts are relieved. No one is in, more in debt than 49 years. All prisoners are released. Everyone starts over. And the, at the, at, and, and, and the day in which they start over, it is a celebration. Everyone brings... Their, their, their bounty to a table and they celebrate starting over with God. Here when Isaiah sees in the future what God's going to do to bring human history to its fulfillment, he picks up the idea. And one aspect of that, of God's fulfilling purpose in history, as Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, he's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal people. Healing is part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was part of His call as the Messiah. It was what God the Father and the Holy Spirit were doing through Him to bring history to its fulfillment, the great year of the, of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. So at the very core of Jesus' ministry is that He is going to be a healer. This is what He does. We cannot separate that aspect from who He was. Now, in a big picture here, the reason why, I mean, think about it. Let's put this together. Uh, in fact, well, I'm going to say more about this sec, but as a preview. Jesus obviously come to restore our relationship with God the Father by doing all kinds of things, first and foremost, forgiving us of our sins, overcoming the alienation of the forces of evil that divide us between God and ourselves and so on. That God's going to, Christ's going to do all that. And He bears our sins in doing that. But He does more than that. He does more than that. He also heals us. He also restores us to our good purposes that God has intended for us. Our creation, the world's creation, your creation, my identity as Dennis Sansom was an act of God's good creative intentions. And God's going to restore all that. And so Jesus' ministry is, in a sense, you can see it as a twofold mission. He restores sinners to God and He restores people to their good purposes. And one way he does that is by performing these kind of healing miracles. Uh, There are several of them. Like I said, there are 37 to 38 miracles. About 23 of those have to do with healing. I'm just going to look at a few of those that I think are exemplary of us understanding rightly what Jesus is trying to do. Uh, The first one is 
the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, of Peter's mother-in-law. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not found in John. Like I said, John only has seven miracles. Uh, but uh, I want to say uh, just a few things about this one. This is, uh, uh, I'll read Luke's version. Okay, he has just preached at the synagogue, as I read, and said about the uh, promise that Isaiah records there in chapter 61. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So what Isaiah had promised, Jesus saying, is what I'm going to do. And then immediately after that, after leaving the synagogue, Jesus went home with Simon. Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a high fever, and the family asked Jesus to help her. He bent over and spoke harshly to the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and served him. Interesting. Not a lot of fanfare about it, but I kind of like that idea that Jesus spoke harshly to the fever. Now, we saw a little bit of this when we looked at Jesus and, the, and, and evil, the demoniacs, that Jesus would cast them out by his own word, that he would confront them by his own word. Here, he confronts this fever by his own word. In a sense, there's sort of an analogy here. As the demons were corrupting people, and Christ frees them by the power of his word, here this illness was corrupting Simon's mother-in-law and he heals the, the mother-in-law back to her health by removing the fever. Like it was an invasion upon her. He saw it as something not natural, not part of God's intended plans, but something that had invaded her, and he speaks harshly to it. Right, then there's another interesting, and this one also has something I think very profound to teach us. Uh, Jesus heals a centurion servant and quite honestly, there might be two episodes here. Uh, it's hard to sort this out exactly when we compare um, Matthew and uh, Luke uh, and their e uh, explanation of how of, of the centurion. Uh, one is going to be a son and the other one's a servant. It could have been two episodes here with the centurion. I'm not sure how to sort all that out. It may have been two centurions that are recorded sort of in parallel fashion between Matthew and Luke and John, or it could have been one centurion who had a sick son and also a sick servant. I'm not really for sure what to make out of all that. However, though, there's something quite profound about it. Uh, this is found, I'm going to read Matthew's version, starting with chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus went to Capernaum, a centurion approached, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is flat on his back at home, paralyzed, and his suffering is awful. Now, in the John parallel, which is in John chapter 4, it says that the certain royal official whose son was sick. Like I said, it may have been. Could have been a servant and a son or two different centurions here that are just recorded in parallel fashion. All right. Jesus responded, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Jesus said the word, I mean, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I am a man under authority, whose soldiers, I mean, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. When Jesus heard this, he was impressed and said to the people following him, I say to you with all seriousness that even in Israel I have not found faith like this. 
Interesting, isn't it? Why, why do you think that's an illustration of the faith that Jesus had not found in all of Israel? Why, why was that so significant that the centurion said, now wait a minute, I, I understand who you are because I also am a man under authority. I am a person of authority. I order a servant to go and the servant goes. You can order this healing and you can do it. And Jesus is amazed. He steps back and says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. What do you think the point of all that is? Interesting, isn't it? He wasn't a Jew. Kind of odd how, with a very few exceptions, the scribes and the Pharisees come off quite negatively. But most of the centurions that are recorded in the New Testament come off positively. And it's this centurion's recognition of what authority is that is the key to this. Well, I, here's my hunch about this. I think in hearing this from the centurion, uh, he, that is Jesus, uh, comes to the realization that here is this Gentile and part of the oppressing force here. They were the Roman oppressors. He recognizes that God was with Jesus, that he had the authority to do it. Remember, Jesus proclaims there at Nazareth that um, uh, he was going to bring in the acceptable year of the Lord. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And one way in which this is going to happen is the, the blind receive their sight. He is bringing in the kingdom of God. That Christ had that presence, that power, that influence, this kind of a, a contagious way of bringing in the kingdom of God wherever he went. He had that power, and that's what the centurion recognized. And evidently, not many others by this time had actually seen that in Jesus. They saw him maybe as just a curious guy, a man from Nazareth, doing some rather interesting things, but not the embodiment of God's authority. And that's what the centurion saw. So the point of this, I think, is that miracles are a sign of the presence of God. Miracles occur because the kingdom of God is in that moment restoring people back to the goodness of their life, forgiving them of their sins, preaching the good news that Christ here is the presence of the kingdom of God. And that's what the centurion sees. And Jesus is, is like saying, you got it. You understand exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm not here just on my own. I'm not showing off. I'm not trying to impress people with what I can do or say. What I'm doing here is trying to change the world. That's what I'm trying to do. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And the centurion recognized that. Now, right after this, there is a, a sort of a, a editorial comment that's given by Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Jesus performing miracles. Uh, in chapter 8 of Matthew, starting with verse 16, it's parallel in Mark and also in Luke, it says this, That evening people brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. He threw the spirits out with just a word. He healed everyone who was sick. All right. In the Markian version, it says, He healed many who were sick. And the Lukean version said, He healed them. Now, I've read various commentaries that sort of play Mark off against Matthew in this. Well, you could say they're saying the same thing. If I say something about every one of you, I'm also saying that about many, aren't I? Yes. It's the same class. 
I could be referring to all in a, a class and therefore would be talking about many people. So I don't think there's a contrast or a change of perspective on this between Matthew and Mark on this. However, though, Matthew does introduce something here that's very important. It's not in Mark or in Luke. I wouldn't say it's contradictory to how Jesus is depicted in those two Gospels. But then Matthew says this, verse 17. This happened so that what Isaiah the prophet said would be fulfilled. He is the one who took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. Chapter 53, verse 4. He carried away our diseases. He took on our infirmities. Now, if you remember from Isaiah chapter 53, it's the fourth of what's called the servant songs in the prophet of Isaiah, in which Isaiah is seeing that an individual, a servant, now it could be corporate, maybe Israel, we, we know at times it's a singular pronoun, it's an individual, maybe Isaiah is really talking about the same thing, I'm not for sure, but God is going to use a servant to redeem the world. That the reconciliation between the holy, righteous God and a sinful, depraved world will occur by an innocent person bearing the sufferings of the guilty. That the hope of the world is for this innocent person to bear the punishment of the guilty, not to get the guilty to bear their own punishment, but that we'll get right with God because Christ, the servant here, is going to come and bear our punishment. One way that this servant, you could call the Messiah, is going to make that transaction happen, that is, we're going to be united with God, we're going to be reconciled, atoned, is that he's going to bear our infirmities. Uh, in Mark's sermon this morning, if there was an 11 o'clock, I guess he's going to repeat it. No, he's not preaching the 11 o'clock service. Oh, he is? Okay, you'll hear that. He talks about the doubting Thomas. Uh, I wish I'd thought of this earlier because I could remember the name of the artist. Um, I actually wrote something about this little piece, and like I said, I'm old and wretched, and I'm <laughs> very forgetful. Uh, but anyway, I, in, in, in the, um, the Victoria Albert Museum in London, I've been there a number of times because Stanford has a study center there, and I've been I've spent three semesters there in London. Used to go to that world-class museum. You been there? The V&A? Anyone been there? It, it's overwhelming. You could spend out, I mean, years and years, and never exhaust everything. But I do remember this: in one room, they have various religious paintings. They have both a painting of doubting Thomas and a sculpture. The painting's very moving. Like I said, I'm forgetting these artists' names. Uh, it, it, uh, it shows Thomas point, you know, pointing his finger into the side where Jesus was pierced with the sword. But the sculpture, though, was really interesting. It's an ancient sculpture. It has a cut here in Jesus' side. And there's a little description of what this sculpture, the role that it played. At the church in which it was uh, first created, people would come and put little notes in that slut, praying for healing, you know, praying for their mother or their son or their daughter or their granddaughter or something. That this is how that they would give a prayer to God. And that is a vivid depiction, that He bore our infirmities. I like that idea, that Jesus' suffering wasn't just, you know, kind of the, you know, the, 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 the bad consequence of an unjust trial, that His suffering has to use a medical term, therapeutic value. 
And in this very, very sort of symbolic graphic way, by putting our prayers on notes and putting in the side of Jesus, he bears our infirmities. This is part of his mission. He wants to restore us to the goodness of life. It's essential to who he is. We cannot separate that and understand who Jesus is. All right, he took our illnesses. All right, another one I want to look at is the healing of the paralyzed person. This will start. Did you find that, Victor? Were you looking? I'm sorry, I should have. If I can think of it this next week, I'll, I'll try to remember who that artist was. Yeah. Okay, here Jesus uh, heals a paralyzed man, and he's confronted with the authorities about uh, forgiving of sins. And Jesus uses this occasion about their confrontation here to teach something very significant. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, Why do you fill your minds with evil things? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Which do you think is the easier, to forgive someone's sins or to heal them? Tough, tough question. They probably thought, hmm, this must be a trick question. <laughs> Every answer I give, he can use against me. But, so you will know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, Get up, take your cot, and go home. The man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw what had happened, they were afraid and praised God, who had given such authority to humans. Well, Jesus uses this kind of a disjunctive statement, either P or Q, either forgive sins or heal, which would, uh, of the two, be easier. And to show that he has the authority to forgive sins, he heals this paralyzed man. So if he can heal, he also has the authority to forgive. And I guess we could have reversed that, and it still would have been true. If Jesus has the authority to forgive, then he also has the authority to heal. Now, why am I saying that? At the beginning, I started by saying Jesus has one mission. He does it in a couple of ways. One, he reconciles us to God by forgiving us of our sins. Two, he restores us to our goodness, to the, to the, to the, the joy of being alive, of being a child of God, of living in this unbelievably interesting and beautiful world, that he restores that goodness to creation, of creation in the healing act. Both of those are his mission. So if any one of those would have been the right answer, in my opinion. Any one would have been the right answer. But they didn't quite understand that. They saw it as blasphemy. So for Jesus, though, you know, uh, now let me think about this. I hadn't thought about this. Okay, blasphemy is when you obviously insult God. That would be blasphemous. You can make mistakes about belief and so on, but blasphemy is an intentional insult about God. All right? They're arguing that he says that he has a right to forgive sins. That's blasphemy. That's an insult to God. Why would that be an insult to God? Because only, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Only God can reconcile us to God's purposes 
restore us to the goodness of our creation. Only God can do that. In Jesus' mind, and obviously in the testimony of the Scriptures, it's the kingdom of God working through Jesus, making those two very things happen. So He has the authority. It is not blasphemy to do that. Now, if I got up and did that, it would be blasphemous. You know, I forgive you of your sins. Now, I do think in, I mean, in the church we have some place in which we can share forgiveness with one another. And I think in some forms of liturgy it's very meaningful to, to pronounce to people your sins are forgiven on behalf of Christ. But I don't have the authority to do that. I can't reconcile any of you to God. Christ does that. And so this is a display, once again, of what we said about him earlier. He is bringing in the kingdom of God. And because of his presence, we are reconciled with God. All right. Uh, The next one is also a very interesting one. And it's where he heals two women in a row. Two women in quite different circumstances in life. Uh, This is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm going to read Mark's because it's a little longer. Jesus crossed the lake again, and on the other side a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him, My daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed. So Jesus went with him. All right, we are told by Luke that the girl was 12 years old. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on him. A woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. So there's a 12-year-old girl. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Her bleeding stopped immediately. She sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. At that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Don't you see the crowd pressing against you? Yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done it. The woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward, knowing what had happened to her. She fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. He responded. This has always, to me, been kind of a very intimate, powerful response that Jesus has to her. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, not stranger, not interloper, but daughter. Jesus was committed to reconcile people to God and to their wholeness, to their goodness. And he said, go in peace, healed from your disease. Her faith healed her. And what was her faith? Can you see a comparison between her faith and the centurions. What, was, what is similar between the centurion's response to Jesus and her response to Jesus? Well, she gave him authority to, to understand. That's right. She sensed something in him 
an authority that the uh, that the uh, centurions saw, but she sensed the goodness of God's kingdom in him. Evidently, she had heard something about his miracles, but being in his presence, though, had this, like I said, this contagious influence, a fact upon the crowd. And she, I can just visualize this, sort of reaches over there and touches it, and then she is healed. Her faith, her not just, you know, I want to get well, not just that, you know, if I can manipulate God, God's going to do it, but her belief and the power of Jesus Christ is what did it. You know, it's not that my faith can heal me, but my faith in Christ can bring that healing upon me. It too, I think, is a great story. But it doesn't end here. When Jesus went to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the distressed crowd, and he said, Go away, because the little girl isn't dead, but is asleep. And they laughed at him. After he had sent the crowd away, Jesus went and touched her hand. And the little girl rose up. News about this spread throughout the whole region. Here's sort of simultaneous, not simultaneous, Searching for the right word. Well, all in kind of one event. Jesus has one thing in mind, and he heals two people. These two, one, a 12-year-old girl, who Jesus says was asleep. They thought she was dead. I, I think she was dead. Jesus was using a metaphor to describe that. Just like last night I went to sleep and I woke up. She's dead, and she's going to come back to life. Her life is not ended. You wake up. Who can give you that power to come back from death? Only the God who has the power of life can do that. And so Jesus brings that power to her as he did to that woman. Uh, I had already mentioned this episode where Jesus is around Nazareth and it mentions Matthew and Mark that he was unable to do many miracles because of their disbelief. Now we've seen with the centurion, maybe with all of them, and, but with this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, they recognized his authority. They believed. And their faith healed them, as Jesus says. But here are other people in Nazareth, maybe because they knew he was you know, Joseph and Mary's son. He was just another guy there from Nazareth. What's so special about him? Well, what made him special was after that sermon that he gave in Luke chapter 4, when he says, today, this is fulfilled in here. Something is happening today. Even though you might have looked back who I was when I was 15 or 20 or whatever, you didn't see anything extraordinary about me. Well, that's okay. But today, the kingdom of God is breaking forth into me. And so they, they you know, you know we're, we're not convinced that that was happening to Jesus. And Jesus did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Now, this, I think, is all, this next passage I want to read has always been convicting for me. And I, I have to admit, this has been abused, probably, but not correctly used enough in the church. And this is the authority that Jesus gives to the disciples to perform miracles. This is in all three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In uh, Mark chapter, I mean Matthew chapter 10, it says, He called His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every disease and every sickness mentions the same thing. The disciples have authority. Where is that authority from? Not themselves, but from the kingdom of God given to them by Christ. The church then has an authority to heal people. Now, of course, we all know sort of grotesque examples of people manipulating that for their own vanity and maybe even sort of you know, financial gain. 
is all in, in some ways kind of a, a, a circus act for many. And, and uh, you know, there, there's something just sort of overtly contrary to the purpose of the gospel in those kinds of displays of miracle workers. That being the case, though, that still does not take away what Jesus says, that his disciples, and it says disciples, by the way, and then it names the 12 apostles after this. There might have been more than the 12 there, but he names the 12 apostles after this. Definitely the apostles were given that authority, and we do know in the book of Acts that uh, some of them actually did perform miracles. We do know that. But here's the question I want to ask you. Should we be praying, expecting miracles as the disciples of Christ? Is it part of your authority as a disciple of Christ to be an agent of Christ's healing work? I'm glad you're saying yes. Okay, we're good. Uh, you know, there are some churches that have specific liturgies for healing. I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, we should take that seriously. I will say this, though. That is always a test of faith, though, isn't it? Why some are healed by the earnest prayers of the disciples and some are not. I had a miracle this past summer with my brother who I thought was dead from cancer and they cannot find it anymore. I had, I had gone to Texas ready for the funeral and he, and I, I prayed a hole in heaven on that one and I, I'm going to say God healed him, uh, whatever. But I also know people though in which that doesn't occur. This is a real test of our faith. Now, if my, my faith was in me, that is, because I was such a profound, sincere, smart disciple, I healed that person, then uh, we would all be rightly disillusioned. However, though, our faith is in the kingdom of God, and it's in the power of Christ to bring this healing. And in ultimately, in that I think God works towards all people, regardless of their situation, that in some way or another, and I, I guess some people think I'm copping out in saying this. For all those people who we think their illnesses are unjust, untimely, not needed, wrong, and we pray for them and they're not healed, and we grieve and we're anguished and we're never the same because of that. We carry pain because of what they have gone through. That one day we'll still know the goodness of their lives and that they will be restored to God that one day we will know that. And here's the reason why I say that. It's 10 till. I'm in, I'm in grace period. <laughs> I don't want to move into wrath period. So I've got five minutes to do all this. Um, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. It, it was in the confession, in the creed, the Nicene Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Not just Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection. And that resurrection is not that God's going to restore me when I get restored in resurrection. I'm still going to have a bad elbow and bad knees and bald hair. That's not it. Bald head. That's not it. That's not what is going to be resurrected from the dead. What is going to be resurrected from the dead is the goodness that God gave each of us as we are within God's providence. That's what will be resurrected from the dead. 
Not, and so when a person dies of these horrible diseases and illnesses that people suffer, there will be a healing. There will be a healing one of these days. That's our faith. And that's our faith in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, which means I believe your goodness, your goodness, and all these other people's goodness in faith will be restored on that day of the resurrection of the dead. Illness is not the last word, in other words. It's not the last word. Okay, uh, I've got just a... I'm going to do one more here before we leave. And this is a... I like this story. This is a wonderful story. It's about when Jesus heals the ten lepers. This is found only in the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, this is in the region right on the border of Galilee and Samaria. There's a church there called St. George that I saw in 2011. I don't know if we're going to go see that little church in June. It's a small little church. It is considered to be the third oldest church in all of Christendom. And it's being restored here. But it's at the place where most people think this particular event occurred. Uh, One second, let me find it. Uh, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was traveling on the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with skin diseases, or leprosy, approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priest. As they left, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, returned and praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus replied, Weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except the foreigner. Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go. Your faith has healed you. Another occasion. It's his recognition of what Jesus had done for him. That is the healing aspect of his faith. His, his acknowledgement that in Jesus' presence is the power of the kingdom that gives sight to the blind. Interesting, though, that nine did not. Now, I don't know. It doesn't say what happened to them. Maybe their leprosy came back. I don't know. But we do know that this tenth one, though, was healed from that leprosy because he recognized what Jesus could do for them, and he praised him. And that's always the proper response to whatever we think may be a healing in our lives, is praise that we have been restored back to our goodness by the graces of God. Oh, one other little sort of passing thing about this. It stresses here he was a Samaritan. If I'm not mistaken, the King James says, and he was a foreigner. Now here's the question. Were all ten Samaritans? That's typically what people think. Because it's in that kind of no man's land between Galilee and Samaria. Or were nine of them Israelites and one of them was a Samaritan? Why would he stress, and this one was a Samaritan? As though this was something unique. Now, here, here's a little... Bible, you know, vacation Bible quiz, all right? What other story in the Gospel of Luke praises a Samaritan? I'll give you the blue star. What other? There you go, the Good Samaritan. Just two chapters before this one in Luke chapter 15. Luke saw these Samaritans. You know, there's the, the woman at Jacob's well that were drawn to Jesus. They saw something unique and powerful 
in a same way that the centurion saw it in Jesus. They sort of cut through the political stuff, cut through the social class, cut through who's in and who's out, and they see Jesus for what He is. He has come to bring in the acceptable year of the Lord. So I'll, I'll close with this. There's, there's many more things we could say about it, but um, this is obviously part of Jesus' mission, and we should recognize that and be grateful for the miracles that we all have experienced. Pray for even more. Be always in faith that uh, Christ in some way or another, He may not do it today to you or to me or to someone else, but we do know that Christ will do it on the resurrection. I'll close us with prayer. We praise Thee, O Lord, for Thy goodness and Thy greatness and Thy power and Thy authority to bring into the world that filled with all kinds of pain and sickness and fear and dread the acceptable year. We praise You for this, O Lord. And we do pray at this moment all these people we know who suffer because of illness, disease, or harm. We pray for your healing in their lives. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.